Today on episode number 337, Deandra Little joins me to talk about effective assessment design. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Joining me for today's episode is Deandra Little. She is an assistant provost and director of the Center for Advancement of Teaching and Learning and professor of English at Elon University. Her scholarship focuses on educational development in higher education, scholarship of teaching and learning, and teaching with images. Deandra is a recent former vice president for the International Consortium of Educational Development and former president of the Pod Network in Higher Education, the North American Association for University Teaching and Learning Centers. Deandra, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Hi, Bonnie. It's good to be with you this afternoon. I always get so interested in reading people's bios, but I'm also interested in knowing what's not in your bio that we might want to know about you as a person and a little bit about your life? Oh, that's a great question. I have three kids, I guess I should say, all three daughters. I'm a huge tea aficionado. Mm. So I love a good cup of tea and being outside with a good book are kind of Is it like asking you to pick one of your favorite children if I ask you to pick a favorite tea or is that an easy question to answer? I like, so I do like a good Assam, a nice malty tea that you can add milk to. Um, Assam. <laughs> this is the kind of tea I don't think I've ever heard of or I drank it and I didn't realize what it was, but <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes. And <laughs> like an Irish breakfast. I mean, it's, it's a blend that you get a lot with, in, with an Irish breakfast. Um, I do like those kinds of teas, although oddly, I don't tend to put milk in my tea unless I'm traveling. It's kind of like <laughs> one of those things, but I do, I do like that taste of that. So we are today talking about assignment design. And of course, we know how much assignment design connects with learning or should we have an opportunity to really connect it with student learning and on a broader level, connect it with assessment. So I know our conversation is going to kind of blend between those things, but we're focused today on how do we become better at designing assignments. And I'm really excited to hear some of the examples and the stories that you have from your experience in this. I'm I'm looking forward to talking about it too. Let's start with your own teaching. And I want you to think back. I don't know how far you have to think back for this question, but I want you to think back to something that happened around your own way of approaching assignment design that you still carry with you today. I know for myself, a lot of these reflections come from my own failures, but occasionally they come from me actually experimenting and hitting it the first time. I'm having something like that right now with the class I'm teaching at this moment of like, wow, that went really well. I want to I want to carry the learnings that I have from that. But again, lots of time that comes from failure. So how about you? What comes to mind for you in your own teaching? Yeah, I, I think of two stories. One was a time that when I realized it wasn't working when I was using um, a new rubric for the first time and 
you know, using the rubric, thinking about, and I teach, I teach literature courses. So I was grading a number of different literary analysis papers that were similar to the same prompts that I had been given in grad school and as an undergrad, right? So students were writing in familiar ways, but in ways that were increasingly boring to me to read and that they were all saying similar things. And then when I was doing the rubric I, and I kept thinking, wow, this student doesn't understand counterarguments, and this student doesn't understand that there might be a multiple interpretations of a text, right? Or, or of a passage, or that's, that's one of the most exciting things to me about language, right? Is that it is often ambiguous and can, can mean different things. And one of the key lessons I thought I was teaching them, right? When we were talking about interpretive arguments and I realized looking at the rubric, it wasn't just the one student that I was giving feedback to, but it was 80% of the students in this particular class on this particular assignment that didn't understand that thing, that didn't understand what, what does it mean to grapple with a text and to suggest not just that it, it, it means one thing, but it could mean all of these other things. And here's why we're going with this thing. So that moment of looking at it and realizing, oh, I've, it is not that individual students are struggling with this assignment. It's that I haven't had them practice the skill of thinking about the different ways a text may mean. Um, I haven't engaged them in discussion around that. And it evolved into an assignment where I asked the students to teach a class in groups and they, they develop a lesson plan. But part of the thing that they have to do is to imagine different potential counter arguments and a, and a model discussion. So they're inviting people to debate, to discuss, and they're setting up that, that discussion so that they're getting at a number of different ways to understand what the text is, is talking about. And that was, that's been a really successful assignment that has morphed over the years, but it also gives students in a group a chance to practice with each other different ways of understanding what something might mean. Before you give your second example, I just want to touch on a couple things that I heard you share with this one. And, and that is that Jesse Stommel is someone who comes to mind for me who has critiqued those of us, myself included, I'm raising my hand if you're listening on the podcast and aren't Deandra and can't see me doing that. But just this idea of grading boring assignments and then complaining about it on social media. Like if you're going to assign something that is torturous for you to grade, then perhaps it was torturous for the students themselves. I'm not, by the way, quoting him directly, but just trying to take away what I've gleaned from him over the years on this. And so it isn't just because we wouldn't want to have to go through pain in order to grade, but because the learning doesn't get facilitated quite as well if we're giving the same kind of assignments. But the other thing that I'm sure you've thought about as well is that we're reducing any opportunities for a lack of academic integrity to be demonstrated as well. So there's a lot less temptation, but also a lot less opportunity to go about and do any attempts of plagiarism or, you know, or what, whatever manner of things that may come up in that. So yeah, that's a, what a great example. And it's great that you can still carry that with you today and draw lessons from it all this time later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and it has really informed how I think too, I mean, connected to what you're talking about, I mean, we know students are motivated by the things that they care about, that they value, that they understand as relevant and that they understand that they can, that they feel like they have some abilities to succeed at. Right. So thinking about whether the assignments are truly authentic, like that, that they're not, not, not just real world. I mean, I, I teach 19th century literature, memoir and autobiography, right? They're, they're, the, the real world application is a, is a different kind of thing sometimes for those of us in the humanities to think through what that means. 
but at least the kinds of thinking we're asking them to do has real world applications or is a is something that can be applied to help us better understand aspects of our world and so thinking about how to how to make assignments more meaningful more authentic or more at least realistic i think can also tap into those questions around motivation did you say that there also was a second example you still draw from today Oh, it was the developing the teaching assignment. So getting mm. students, I've spent over the years, I spent some time trying to refining that assignment, getting them to think about why they want to teach particular elements of the text and what, they, what they're doing with it. it. It also, I mean, selfishly brings together two things I love. One is teaching literature and one is talking about teaching and learning. Mm-hmm. So it also gives me the opportunity to talk to students about approaching teaching, hopefully in ways that are also connected to their own thinking about teaching and learning. Your work today, of course, expands well beyond any of your individual classes, and you have the opportunity to coach and guide not only faculty from your own institution, but also that you've been involved in these different organizations. So I can only imagine that you have ran across not just your own common challenges that you've faced, but also in working with others, what would you say are among the common challenges that we might have as faculty just around thinking through designing assignments? Yeah, if you come to mind, I mean, some you've already touched on, right? So if we're grading work that we find boring, right, or, or that we, we keep getting the same unsatisfactory answers, then perhaps it is not actually testing the kinds of things or assessing the kinds of things that we really want, the kind of learning that we really want to see happening. I think, too, another challenge is whether we're creating assignments that are really aligned with our goals. And then that may sound like a different way of saying the same thing I just said. But so if I'm really invested in critical thinking and getting students to think about, you know, mustering evidence to um, prove a particular argument, and then I'm only giving them a multiple choice exam, right, then there's a misalignment between what I'm asking them to do and what kind of thinking I'm trying to create. And I think um, of a story that a colleague of mine tells that for her was a moment of insight when she's a historian, and synthetic thinking um, is really important in, um, in history. And she spent the entire semester preparing them to think analytically, like to, to, be, to analyze a text and then the final exam was a synthetic moment and students routinely didn't do well on it. And so her takeaway from that was, was too, like, how do we give students practice? And one common challenge that I see is we're not asking students to practice the kind of thinking we are then grading them on or assessing them on in the end. There's a misalignment between the assignment and the learning, but also between the practice and the ultimate thing they're being graded on. From your earlier story, and then also from what you just shared, I have an example, and it's one that I just cringe that I'm about to share, but I, I it, it, it illustrates so many of the things that you're talking about. So I'm teaching a class that's about personal leadership and productivity, and we're mm-hmm. reading a couple of different books, one of which is in the, the realm of productivity. It's called Getting Things Done, and one of the things that the author, David Allen, distinguishes between is what is he calls a task or a next action, he calls them, versus a project. Mm-hmm. And just like you were talking about that you want to be creating assignments that are building up to the kind of thinking that you want students to be able to know, or the kind of language or, or, or skills. And so I had planned out in our synchronous session that we were going to 
read a really a few quick tips about how do you write better tasks and and kind of this idea of talking to future you don't just say call John but like what are we calling John regarding and if we don't already have his phone number and our contacts you know putting it there that kind of thing and then I also wanted them to be able to distinguish between a next action and a project and so I happen to have my airpods sitting next to me and I mean I'm just sometimes you know you're trying to clarify something you just look at what you've got so I pulled it up and I said okay, so I kept dropping these things over and over again. And I finally dropped them so many times that I needed to purchase a new pair. And so purchasing a new pair of AirPods, is that a task or a project? And I think that this is an easy question. So I asked them on on Zoom, you have these little reactions. So I said, okay, if you want to say that that's a task, then clap, the, do the clap hands thingy. And then if you want to say that this is a project, then do that other thing. And I l- literally, for, it was like a, like, one person would do it and then the next person and then you start to see like it builds up it's that I forget what that's called in psychology but where others votes have influenced your votes and so that they were all getting it wrong they're all saying project and I'm like it's I thought this was like a super easy (laughs) thing to distinguish between so rather than tell them that they were wrong I said somebody I really need and I I did call on somebody cold cold call they call you know would you would you share kind of what you'd be thinking around help me help me understand this and he says, well, first, anybody would have to just save up enough money to buy the new pair of AirPods. And I'm just, my heart. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's what 100% of they're like, yep, you got to save up your money again. Because if you dropped your AirPods too many times, save up the money. And then once you have enough, you got to research so that you find the cheapest pair. And then, and then I, and of course, in my thinking, I was just like, well, you just go and you just order it. So I think all, all this to say, you said we want to make sure that our assignments and in this case you know a test uh, that that I thought had a right or wrong answer but of course did not is assessing the things that we actually want to measure and uh, the other thing of course would be that they didn't get graded on this like they didn't get it wrong I you know marked them all down and they minus five points or whatever that that was part of not just their learning process but also mine yeah yeah it, it but I mean I think that's a that's such a that's such a nice example because it does like a really good assignment, which is a really good assessment, also teaches you something or tells the tells the instructor something as much as it tells you about what the students are learning. It's also telling you what they aren't learning, how you might have asked a faculty question rather than asking it a student question that they understand, think about. You're reminding me too when you were talking about the language of task and project about the transparency and learning and teaching framework that came out of Marianne Weeple-Moss's work right out of when she was at University of Nevada, Las Vegas. That's one of the things when I'm talking with colleagues too about creating effective assignments, we often use the framework that comes out of that. How do you clarify the purpose? How do you clarify the task? So it's not project and task, but purpose and task. And then how do you clarify the criteria being used to evaluate how clearly people are how clearly students or learners are meeting that. And the an interesting thing to me is that sometimes defining the purpose can be really hard for those of us who are experts, right? We you just do it because this is this is the important thing. Like this is what you this is the way we have to think or this is the way our discipline does this thing. But the purpose can be the most important thing for students to understand because it tells them the why. Why am I doing this? Like why does this matter? What, you know, why isn't this just a why is this more than busy work? Like the thing that you've assigned me to do. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm shifting the task a little bit from that. But what you said made me think of that as a, 
an effective set of questions to think about, but sometimes what's the blind spot for those of us? Yeah. And, and anyone who thinks that that is easy is kind of probably missing it because it's really something that haunts me in my own teaching. It's very challenging to do that. And and I, I just feel like it's a wrestling that we can never step away from. At least that's been my experience. Either that or I'm just terrible <laughs> and everyone else has it figured out. But my experience, this is just an ongoing wrestling that I never really land anywhere for very long before I just start the wrestling again. Yeah, I agree. Well, and students keep changing and our context keeps changing. So when you do have the perfect assignment, then the audience for that assignment or the the questions that you're asking may have shifted slightly in a way that, that means you have to revisit it. Yes. And of course, the time that we are all teaching in now with so much back and forth and so much individual trauma combined with a collective trauma um, uh, that I mean, that's that's changing so much. I hope that one thing is that we are all doing just thinking about the essentials, you know, the, and and it, and it really does go back to defining the purpose because you can't have 10,000 purposes <laughs> really, really have to narrow this down both at the assignment level, then also at that, the course level too. Yeah. Well, and it also, that thinking about the purpose also helps you talk about meaning and meaning making and what is meaningful, um, you know, why we all teach the things we teach because we think they matter, right? We, we, we go into our fields and our disciplines and our subject matter, you know, because we think that it matters. And so it's also an opportunity for us to help, for us to revisit, like why might it be meaningful in this particular moment and time? And how do we prioritize the things that seem most meaningful? And how do we help students understand how what we're teaching can be used to find meaning or make meaning? One of the things that I'm thinking about a lot is, both in my own teaching, but also coaching faculty as well, is just this idea of, <laughs> I, I, I did a better job than I've ever done before of having more of my class done. By the time our classes started in August, didn't get all the way 100% there, but I mean, the framework was there, but you know, I had a few asynchronous things to design and a few synchronous sessions still yet to go. But just this idea of I need to, for my own sanity, I know so many of my colleagues, we do need to have that structure and the, we've got to be a far enough ahead to just deal with the chaos that we're all facing. Yet you also still want to leave enough room for what happened today, <laughs> what happened this week. So to be able to more seamlessly integrate current events when when appropriate in a given class, but I guess can't really think of a given class when you can't bring in, you know, those things, but leaving those slices for assignments to draw. And that those are that's an, again another approach. When we bring in the current events to reduce the incidence of a lack of academic integrity, along with, you said earlier, creating the motivation, that sense of meaning, significance. Do you have any advice for people around that kind of thing? Like, how do you get it done enough that you could actually manage this, these assignments, you know, get enough of it done while still leaving those slices of, of current stuff? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. And, and some of it is, right, what you're talking about in terms of how do you how do you think ahead to future you, to October you, who may yes. think, okay, a little flexibility in the schedule is helpful, right? Building in time in a given week or a given class period or in a given assignment to know that you, you might want to connect it in different ways. Some of it too may be thinking about those low stakes assignments, right? So it's, a, it's an opportunity to say, half the class bring a headline, 
tomorrow and let's talk about how that headline or how that newspaper article or tweet or, or whatever connects to what we're talking about in class. Like how do we, how do we connect that to the content for today so that it's not a full fledged assignment necessarily if you don't have time or a lot of elbow room within the content that you have to, that you're teaching that semester to make room for it, but you can still make those connections and help students understand how those, those conversations are connected to this other assignment that may not be dramatically altered, but that is now connected. I did something so similar to what you're describing in January of 2020. So I taught January through May and students, it was this week in business news and the class was business ethics. So they would each get a sticky note and then they would write their story up and you should have seen it. (laughs) It's not funny, but Oh my God. I wish I would have taken, I think I did take pictures. I should, I should go back so I could visually show this one coronavirus mention and the, of the 25 stickies on the wall to 10, a hundred percent. But part of it was I really struggled because that class was not a class about misinformation. That Mm -hmm. class was not a class about evaluating the credibility of one's headlines that they've brought in, but I'm really struggling with and thinking about, cause I'll be teaching the class again. I mean, the sticky notes is easy. We'll do it on digital sticky notes instead of actual sticky notes. That parts, I got that part down, but just this idea of, I don't, I can't solve all of the world's problems around misinformation, but I got to do something better than I did. Just, I mean, just up our game a little bit so that we don't have the conspiracy theories up there. And it's in all these different topics and some of which I know about and some of which I don't. It was really a challenge. And that's probably the hardest thing that I'm thinking about for this coming, coming year. Yeah. And, And which of those are directly connected to your learning outcomes for the class and which are and they're not <laughs> yeah patient learning outcomes that are yes. you know that are connected to it's like I'm trying to solve a much bigger problem and you know that that should go beyond a class and isn't even when at the learning outcomes yeah yeah it's so tough but uh, there's also that that individual academic values you know that we're that mm-hmm. we're connecting to too yeah yep which I think sometimes can be the the question to ask ourselves, like, is this, is this informing an assignment? Is this informing an activity or a conversation in class? Yeah. Right. Because yeah. both of them are important, but they have different weight or different um, scope can have a different scope in the class. I like that you said that because you're helping me realize that because I, I do, t- I tend to ha- want to have most things somehow have a backbone of being assessed in some way, but that I don't have to do it a hundred percent. If I allowed myself a little freedom to feel like you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be assessed, but could they gain a few of these skills in a, in a either low stakes or no stakes opportunity? That's something for me to think about for sure. So I, I'm excited about this next question because you've done this work for, for so long and you get to talk to so many people and then it's, it's so close to your own mind and your own heart as well. Could you talk about an example of a person or if you've got a couple people in mind that are really truly doing something novel in assessment design that might inspire us in some ways? So I can think of a couple of examples. One seems appropriate on a podcast to talk about and that it's a podcast assignment, but I, I two colleagues in our department of human service studies, which is like a, our social work department on campus, developed two different podcast assignments for students in classes that have community partners. So their students are interviewing community partners and thinking about, um, 
range of issues connected to course content, but in partnership with the community partners, and then it becomes public in particular ways that have been, that are sanctioned by the community, community partners as well. But they've assigned, they've created this assignment in the first year course and in the capstone course so that they can also use it as a measure of assessment to see how students have developed, like how their professional identity formation has happened over four years, like how they're thinking ethically or reciprocally about work with community partners over four years. And the assignments are different. It's not the exact same podcast, but they're similar enough that there are they can see and measure and compare learning across that time. And it was, it was what was really exciting. So it was a, it was a really interesting assignment and it connected to their departmental goals around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And then Corona happened in the spring and community engaged courses were being taught in totally different ways. And so one of the things they did is pivot the assignment to actually have their students talking to the community partners about how is the coronavirus affecting the community members that you work with? How, you know, how is it affecting the issues that you work on as a nonprofit? That was an assignment that's been really interesting to see both how they created it and how they've structured it, how they use it, a bookend, you know, to understand learning sort of in the first year and the fourth year of a program, and then how they've been able to pivot with it. I think one other assignment that's just really creative that I think is interesting, it's a, it's a colleague who teaches like literature from the Enlightenment period. So it's 17th century British literature. You know, it's, it's a language that students don't necessarily read quickly or easily. And he turned it into a food studies course. So in addition to reading, he teaches in a classroom where there's a kitchen attached. And so in addition to reading and thinking about literature from the era, they're also cooking recipes from the same time and talking about things like how the pineapple becomes then a symbol of the empire for Britain during the time period. And so by the end, like the final assignment, students are creating a menu that's kind of a medley that both puts together ingredients they've talked about, but also puts together course concepts in ways that demonstrate their understanding. It's fun and it's tasty. It's <laughs> <laughs> a pretty awesome assignment. Oh, these stories are so rich. I'm thinking about the number of times food has come up as an example in this podcast. I'd, I'd love to even just do like a little analysis of that because it it really it can enrich learning experiences in such powerful ways and I'll I'll just tell a quick story that I think I may have told on another episode but I'll tell it quick (laughs) in case this is someone's first time listening but I had an assignment the same class I shared about earlier the productivity class and so I just needed to assess it was a really simple assessment took the students about 30 seconds to do it and me about 30 seconds to check it off but I needed to see that they could invite someone on a calendar invite so I had them invite me to a fictitious thing we're not going to actually do this thing but you know somebody took me to Paris and somebody else (laughs) took me I got to go for a fictitious walk on a beach and one student invited me to eat a food item from her family and it introduced me to a part of her culture that I didn't know. And I looked up what the food is. And actually, I didn't even have to have done that because she put a picture of it in another assignment. So you see how these assignments sort of can bleed into other assignments. And you just start to really get to know your students. Even in this time of teaching, I feel like I know these students so much better than I ever have known students before. And I really know students pretty well in past classes. So just because of these little assignments where the parts of their life get to come and enter into it. And that was one example of one that I just tripped over. But anyway, all these things having to do with food is so intriguing. And this colleague of yours just sounds 
what an amazing thing to have done that. And all of a sudden, 17th century literature starts to sound interesting to me. And candidly, it didn't before before you added the pineapple into it. Oh, I love that. Well, before we go to the recommendations segment, let's just talk a little bit about overwhelm. When, mm-hmm. when we hear about pineapples and when we hear about podcasts and all that might be entailed, because I'm sure that that first assignment, they've put so much thought and so much work into it. You couldn't have pivoted that well if they didn't already have the roots established for something like that. So for some of us, it just feels too overwhelming. So can we shrink this a little bit? And could you give us some advice around one small thing a person in their classes could do to get just a little bit better when it comes to assignment design? Something to shrink it down for us that we can have a starting point. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think the purpose task model is helpful because you can take an existing assignment and begin to think about how do I tweak it to make sure that I'm artic- that I'm making really clear, here's here's why I'm asking you to do the thing I'm doing. And then I can also begin to think about, well, well why am I having them do that? Oh, can I, are there, are there tiny tweaks that I could make that may move it um, closer to that? I, I do think too, like thinking about the, whether we're asking students to, to do authentic work, I, I, I always like to describe it to my students because they think it's really bizarre for me to say it, but like, I'm asking you to do what literary scholars in the wild do all the time, right? Um, just sort of silly to think yeah. about, but, but also like this is this is this is authentically how people are using the information that we're talking about and the context they'd use it in, um, and the, and a and a real audience they'd use it for. I mean, sometimes even another easy kind of relatively easy thing to do is to think about how do I help students understand an audience other than me that they're doing this assignment for. And, and maybe that holds true more for things other than multiple choice exams, right? Those are, those are harder to build an audience around. But, um, but even within those, you can ask a, a problem set that's giving them a more authentic audience for the kind of problem you're then asking them to solve so they can visualize um, an audience who would use the information that they are um, writing up or solving for you. And too often we decide collectively that the audience or the context is going to be that next stage in someone's academic experience. So, oh, well, you have to write this way because you're going to go into a master's program, a doctoral program. Do you really know what percentage of your students are we serving them well if we make that assumption that 100% of what we're doing is prepare them for a context that they quite likely may not go into ever, but especially not perhaps immediately when they're done with their undergraduate. And of course, I'm speaking, we, we have lots of people listen to teaching grad programs, etc. But just thinking about narrowing our context to what we understand, versus mm-hmm. expanding our own imaginations for our students context, which is incredibly hard to do, but such crucial work. Yeah, definitely. This is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And one thing I have loved always is just the beautiful writing that faculty do to their students. Uh, there's also some atrocious writing. So some of you may have heard of these dear student letters. I wouldn't Google dear student letters in general, but some people have tried to counteract some of those really disparaging views of the people we serve and written their own beautifully written dear students. And so the example I have today is not a dear student letter, but it just draws from that body of writing that I treasure so much. And this one is from someone I don't know, but Brandon Bain 
from UNC Chapel Hill. And this is part, I'll put it in the show notes so everybody else can go enjoy this, but this is part of his syllabus for a class and it's, it's called an adjusted syllabus and he doesn't have the entire syllabus here, but the important part for us today is around five principles that he writes about. So this is to really share with his students. I, I mean, I just oozes with empathy. So he says, number one, principle number one, nobody signed up for this. Not for the sickness, not for the social distancing, not for the sudden end of our collective lives together on campus, not for an online class, not for teaching remotely, not for learning from home, not for mastering new technologies, not for varied access to learning materials. His second principle, the humane option is the best option. We're going to prioritize supporting each other as humans. We're going to prioritize simple solutions that make sense for the most. We're going to prioritize sharing resources and communicating clearly. Number three, we cannot just do the same thing online. Some assignments are no longer possible. Some expectations are no longer reasonable. Some objectives are no longer valuable. Number four, we will foster intellectual nourishment, social connection, and personal accommodation, accessible asynchronous content for diverse access, time zones, and contexts, optional synchronous discussion to learn together and combat isolation. We will remain flexible. This is number five and adjust to the situation. Nobody knows where this is going and what we'll need to adapt. Everybody needs support and understanding in this unprecedented moment. That's my recommendation for today. And Deandra, I'm going to pass it over to you for yours. Well, and and what's fun is that we didn't talk about our recommendations beforehand because I think mine connects some to the at least the the spirit of the of that of that passage you read I had a colleague here who asked me to be her kind of accountability buddy for this 10-day loving kindness challenge with Sharon Salzberg who is uh, does a lot of teaching and talking and has at least 10 books about different kind of meditation practices but she describes this it's a series of videos and she describes the the series as guided meditation practices to help you cultivate love, compassion, joy, and equanimity for anyone looking for ways to find solid ground and greater serenity during our turbulent times. And it's one thing I would recommend right now that it's been a challenge. It was a, a 10 day challenge for me. And it's, it's been helpful to think about other ways to respond rather than fear and anxiety in a time when so much seems uncertain and so much seems so easy to, to push us in that direction. Oh, I love that so much. And I want to comment on it. But before I do, I am cracking up at myself because I finished with sharing the recommendation and then I started listening very intently to you. And my eyes caught the line after the link that I posted to Brandon Bain's adjusted syllabus. And it says, retweeted from Deandra. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, my recommendation actually should be credit to you. (laughs) <laughs> oh, no. So I, I think you I think I discovered Brandon's adjusted syllabus from you on Twitter and I didn't mention that before sharing it. So uh, at least I caught myself um sort of plagiarizing from social media before the show has ended. So I apologize for that. But what I love about what you just shared with the 10 day loving kindness and, and some of your reflections on it is just that I have to be careful how I say this in the sense of so many of us are experiencing things that we're not choosing, but just the way that you said that is just like a reminder that when we do these kinds of practices, we do 
have an opportunity to an extent to make a different choice. And yeah, my, my husband took the kids on a Grand Canyon trip. and He sent me a photograph of them next to the Grand Canyon. And my fear of heights just took over. And all of a sudden, like I'm swimming in my own anxiety and panic. And then I literally was able to just do like, is this how you would like to spend the rest of your day? And I was able to calm myself down. I did also have a picture of him where they weren't standing next to the Grand Canyon. But yeah, I do think, again, I, I try not to put this on other people, but I find it helpful to think for myself, like, is this how you would like to spend your time? And meditations like the one you're sharing can really help with that. Like that, this just sounds amazing. I can't wait to go explore it myself and to tell other people about it and not credit you for <laughs> Oh, this has been such a joy-filled conversation. I'm so glad to have been connected with you. And you were actually recommended for the show a gazillion years ago and finally was, you know, got in touch with you. That kind of happens sometimes with podcast guests, but I'm so glad we're connected. And and Thank yeah, you. just a pleasure to have this conversation today. I've really enjoyed it. Hello, everyone. I have a special guest with me today to close out the episode. My name is Hannah, and I sometimes call myself Meow Meow. And we both would like to thank today's guest, Deandra Little, for joining me on today's episode. And Hannah wants to thank everybody for listening. Thank you, and watch Mommy's episodes that are coming soon. Yeah, they come every week, don't they, Hannah? Rain or shine? I never knew that. Pandemic or no pandemic, they just keep on coming every week. Okay, bye everyone. Bye, bye everyone. Happy listening.